Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dress, the history of fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. So Cass, as you know, earlier this week, you spoke with Kirsty McLeod about her 11-year art initiative known as the Red Dress Project. And this basically was a collaboration working with embroidery artists from 28 countries around the world embroidering on the same red dress as they passed it from country to country to country. And today we're actually going to continue on this theme of red fashion, but we're not going to speak about Kirstie's project. We're actually going to talk about a very cool new ed tech company known as Little Red Fashion. And, I, and before we go any further, I just want to point out that these two projects are not related. It just kind of happens to be this happy coincidence that they're both about the color red. But because of that, we did think it would be kind of cute to pair them together this week. Yes, and today is actually a bit of a first for us parents and some of our younger listeners rejoice because today we are chatting (laughs) about the future of fashion education for kids. We were recently contacted by dressed listener Jonathan Joseph about his incredible new educational startup for kids and teens, which is called Little Red Fashion. Yes. And honestly, I, friends, I can't emphasize how exciting this is. This is literally fashion's future in the making. And one of the cool platforms for Little Red Fashion is that fashion is for everyone. And as their mission states, quote, our goal is to help shape the future of an industry too long plagued by issues related to negative body image, elitism, colorism, racism, and more. And we are here to ensure that the next generation of fashion leaders and creatives learns from the mistakes of the past and is even more inspired and empowered than ever. From books in both digital and print format to apps, including sketchbook functionality and also digital mentorships, Little Red Fashion is combining the best of both physical and online education materials to, quote, make fashion history accessible and fun, which we love, and then using, quote, materials in arts, literacy, and STEM fields based on fashion to teach in new ways, end quote. And we cannot wait to welcome Jonathan Joseph to the show to discuss his vision and what we can expect from Little Red Fashion very, very soon. Welcome, Jonathan. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today on Dressed. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, April. I'm such a fan of the show. I love the work that you guys do. And I'm so honored to join your illustrious pantheon of dressed guests. Ah. Yeah, I'm excited to dive into everything we're building at Little Red Fashion, uh, being the first of our kind as the first children's fashion ed tech and publishing company in history is just super exciting, something I'm really passionate about. And honestly, uh, I'm really honored to have this platform right now because we just went public with our mission the first week of January, even though we've been working on this for a couple of years now. Yeah, and, and we're definitely going to like get all that contact information out and where people can contact you and find everything about um, your your startup. But um, um, before we kind of get into all of that, I'm hoping you could tell us a little bit about yourself and um, your background and also your childhood, because your childhood is very much at the core of why you launched this endeavor. 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, I live a very intersectional reality as someone who is an immigrant. I was adopted from Colombia when I was nine months old. Uh, I was abandoned and put in an orphanage. Uh, and uh, I was lucky to be picked up by two wonderful parents. Uh, my mother was Italian-Irish from the Bronx and Queens. My father is Persian from Tehran. Uh, and so I grew up with a heady mix of Irish, Italian, Persian. Uh, I didn't even find out I was adopted until I was about 11, 10 or 11 years old. And I looked like my adoptive parents. So it was kind of one of those things where everyone was like, oh, I like to think of it like it's, you know, you have a dog long enough, you start to look like your dog. So maybe there's a <laughs> feedback loop there. <laughs> But uh, as someone with cerebral palsy, uh, I have a toxic CP, which is the rarest form of CP. And uh, I was very lucky in that it was very mild and it largely affected, uh, affected my depth perception, balance, uh, fine motor skills, and things like this. So uh, from an early age, I was really interested in fashion because I had AFO leg braces. And so in an effort to sort of uh, hide them or make them more... Uh, streamlined with my outfits, my mom would take me to the garment district or hunting around Connecticut and Westchester to find tall enough socks in every color that you could imagine in order to cover my braces, but still have it like match my outfits. But then sometimes it would go the other direction where we'd find this great pair of socks and then have to find an outfit to go with the socks. <laughs> and so that's like really what kicked off my love of fashion and the idea of dress as armor, as uh, way to insulate myself from, you know, some of the criticism of the world, but also on the other side of the coin, uh, leverage it as a form of empowerment and really uh, stepping into, you know, I, I initially, I would think in retrospect, thought of covering my leg braces as almost an act of shame where it was like, I'm just trying to downplay this, which I think was where my mother was coming from. But then as she saw that I would like, even in shorts, like make a point to highlight my socks, it was, it, it transformed, I think, uh, into something where I was proud of it because not everyone had all these cool socks and not everyone uh, had all these things. And I think uh, growing up in a small town in Connecticut, uh, even though I spent a lot of time in the city, uh, you know, small town, small minds kind of thing happens. And it forced me to create a relationship to clothing that was protective. I always thought that my self-expression was that thing that yes, it marked me out, but it marked me out in a way that I could own rather than my leg braces writ large, which marks me out in a form of otherness. So it was a way to reclaim myself. Uh, and so that was definitely a big piece of the origin. And I would say the other part of my childhood that definitely plays into that, the uh, mission of Little Red Fashion, is seeing my mother because she was a full-figured woman who had metastatic breast cancer for over 20 years. I never knew her without either going through chemo, radiation, sometimes slight remission. And what I remember especially now as an adult, was how certain garments, certain accessories, uh, when she was facing the fear of going into another round of chemotherapy, she would put on her Dior sunglasses, and she's not a wealthy woman. We, we do not come you know, from a wealthy background. She, her father died when she was two uh, and you know, raised by a single mom in the 40s, uh, which was a challenge. And just a shout out to all single moms throughout time. Oh my God, oh my God. Throughout time, forever and always, 
God bless you in every way because it is it is not easy. And especially now, I think with COVID and just juggling the craziness of working from home and schools and everything, God bless. That's that's really all, what it boils down to. Uh, I mean, my grandmother uh, used to, no lie, uh, her, her one of her jobs to pay my mom's way through Catholic school was to work at Barnum and Bailey, scooping up the elephant uh, things. Uh, you know, uh, uh, and so it was always instilled in me that like whatever you got to do to like buckle down and get done, you do it. And uh, whether it was with my CP. Uh, or later when I was in a job with my HIV diagnosis, I was very uh, lucky to have a role model like my mom who pushed through. So even mm-hmm. though it was a struggle for her in many ways to be raising a special needs child who was also precocious uh, and verbose, never stopped. <laughs> she started talking at nine months, didn't stop since. And uh, seeing those moments where she would, I can close my eyes and see it even, she would be afraid. You could see the fear in her face as she's getting ready to go for a transfusion or something and then kind of shake it off, put on the sunglasses, like feel like she was protected and ready to go. And she felt empowered and beautiful in the way that she could. Uh, that was really instrumental in my, you know, the formation of my fashion and dress consciousness. And it was really important to me to honor that. And it's what really gave me my foot in the door with realizing that I love this industry. So I think in terms of my childhood, those pieces, watching my mom feel empowered by clothing and empowering me to sort of follow in those footsteps, literally and figuratively because they're leg braces, um, was definitely the earliest sort of fashion memories uh, relative to that. And then also antique and tax sales was like a big thing uh, with me and my mom is something we did together. Shopping was like one of our bonding things. And so, um, you know, whether it's back to school or really just at any time. Uh, just diving into like, what do you like? Why do you like this? What's interesting about it? Do you want to learn more about it? And uh, my father is a chemist. So then, you know, sometimes it'd be like, oh, do you want to like, here's an excerpt of how denim is made. And like, most parents don't necessarily have the thought or access to things to do that. And so as an adult, it occurred to me, like, where are the resources for parents who have fashion nerd kids um, that maybe they don't have a clue about the industry? And so it was like, where, where's this gap and why does it exist? And now let's fill it. Yes. And, and, and on that point, tell us, what is the Little Red Fashion Startup Educational Platform and what are you hoping to accomplish with it? Well, in short, uh, we believe that fashion is for everyone. That is our tagline. Yet the idea is that, for one thing, as I spoke to the resource gap, I'm just creating the tools that I wish I had had when I was like nine, 10, 11, just realizing the power of dress and fashion to empower myself and also express myself. Mm -hmm. And I think that today's world is so complex. Uh, It's always been complex, but those complexities are much more at the fore. And I think uh, with Little Red Fashion, our mission is to use fashion, much like you guys do at Dress as a lens for deconstructing so many multivalent areas within society. And I think creating resources for two groups. One is kids who love fashion and just want to know how the sausage is made, so to speak, but need to learn it in ways that are on their level and that meet them where they're at, as opposed to the Stanley Tucci Devil Wears Prada moment, where it's just, there, there's obviously a place for sifting through Vogue and Harper's and W and V and all those things. But at the end of the day, those are adult media formats that kids are then taking in, which, you know, the downstream effects of that relative to body dysmorphia, colorism, et cetera, et cetera, um, are one conversation. But also just in terms of pedagogy, it's always better to meet people where they're at. And we've yet to meet kids who, who love fashion where they're at in any substantive holistic way. You know, I started with The Little Red Dress, which was the first book. 
very quickly, I realized after a couple of drafts, okay, there's more meat on this yeah. bone than, than I realized. Yeah. You know, and, and, and then it sort of caught on. Like something clicked in my head where I said, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's so much more here. Let me be the, uh, have you been a strategic consultant for like over a decade? Then I sort of did for myself what I would do for a client. And I said, okay, let me do some market research. Let me see what's out there. And, you know, as expected, and as you well know, everything that's out there is very piecemeal. There's maybe a sewing thing here or maybe a couple, you know, uh, workshops here or there. And some groups and nonprofits do a couple things to get kids into fashion in a very cursory way. But the bulk of fashion education resources really target like later high school students or older kids. Yes. And so that glaring white space between kids who are realized, like the kids who are like, oh, Elmo just taught me how to get dressed. I love getting dressed. This is how I can express myself. And I'm preparing to go to Parsons. That's a huge gap. And so I became obsessed with coming up with ways to fill that gap through a lens of diversity, equity, inclusion, and sustainability. Yeah. And it's uh, Little Red Fashion is going to be launched as this multi-platform venture, you know, with this emphasis on tech-based learning. And, and, and I know that you've been working on this for quite some time, so long before COVID. So it, it wasn't necessarily because of that, you know, when, when all the students are now doing remote learning, you were already working on this angle. How are you using tech within your mission? And also, like, how does that combine with physical assets? For sure. So, uh, yeah, we've definitely been working on this modality well before COVID. I think it kind of was sort of happenstance uh, in terms of market timing, because now most people are primed for this kind of thing. For me, it's about what is called the fidgetal moment, the fidgetal experience, where we are bridging the physical and digital divide. If you look at research from groups like Lego, one third of parents want more fidgetal resources for their kids, and 63% of kids want that. So there's clearly a need. And what I think technology allows us to do, especially for a field like fashion, which has so many facets to anything you could talk about, whether it's the chemistry behind the dye, whether it's the manufacturing process, whether it's the human rights in hand in fashion, whatever it is, technology allows us to take a formerly static resource, write a book. You buy a kid's book, the kid reads the book X number of times, the book sits in a toy box or shelf and whatever, and you spent your money and quote down the drain outside of what they've absorbed. But through technology like augmented reality, which can be updated through time, we take a formerly static resource and then can imbue it with changing value over time so that the book becomes a storehouse of value and isn't something that is just read a few times and tossed unless it becomes, you know, one of those few titles that he gets obsessed with and reads a million times. I mean, I still have my copy of Liberty Plants. I still have my copy of Madeline uh, from when I was a kid. Those were my favorites. But it was all about reimagining what publishing could do and what mm-hmm. children's book publishing could do. You know, that space has been contracting year over year. And I think it's because a lot of the major players are too used to doing things uh, business as usual, as it were. And what right. I, is really exciting to me for Little Red Fashion is we're basically simultaneously disrupting fashion, publishing, and ed tech. Because I think augmented reality uh, it is the wave of the future. I don't believe in preparing kids for the jobs we have today. I believe in preparing them for where the market will be and where the world will be when they are of age. And I think that um, today's digitally native children want resources that speak to them. And I think augmented reality and other things like interactive video, which we're working on as well, hold a lot of power, not only because it's native to them, but because it can translate some of the more nebulous topics relative to fashion in a unique way. Uh, I'll give a use case example that we're actively working on. We are 
working with one of our advisors, Anina Net, a former model and fashion technologist from China. She was the one responsible for Guo Pei's uh, smart mirror activation, as you uh, may recall from a couple of years ago. And what we're putting together is an interactive video format and an interactive video technology that Anina has pioneered uh, in order to teach diversity, equity, and inclusion through the model selection process. So imagine I'm a kid and I want to be casting a show. We, through interactive video, can allow them to go through the decision trees of the casting process with truly diverse models, whether that be models with vitiligo, models of differing body types, models with disabilities, et cetera. And then through the interactive video, different activations will pop up with some contextual history. So for example, it may teach them about the Battle of Versailles and the importance of Pat Cleveland and the importance of Ebony Fashion Fair or whatever it might be. And we're, through interactive video, able to not only give them the his fashion historical context, but also give them a sense of the power that these decision makers at different areas of the industry have so that they understand in a very soft skills kind of way how the sausage is made so that hopefully, and this is part of my thesis here, uh, we can sort of cut off at the pass a lot of the toxic elements of, relative to you know, media literacy and let them understand that what you're seeing on the other end of either a glossy magazine or an advertisement or an advertorial, whatever, is a processed image that has been created for you by these people. And this is what that process looks like in a kid-friendly way. That's a big part of the mission to me, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember, I, I've mentioned on the show a couple times that I grew up in a religious cult and, you know, uh, the contraband hidden in my room as a teenager, I was not allowed to have fashion magazines. The contraband hidden in my room was um, REM tapes and uh, fashion magazines. <laughs> Um, but, uh, like, I remember this one very specific issue of Seventeen that had Mia Yehovovich on the cover. And she and I are almost exactly the same age. I think we're, like, a couple months apart. Um, we were born the same year. And I was just so, like, completely transfixed and a little bit obsessed with this issue because here was this girl that was my same age, like, living this amazing, fabulous life. And, of course, she's exquisitely beautiful. But at that time, I was so naive. I did not realize that hair and makeup was a thing. I didn't even know. I didn't even know about it. And I was like, what, 12 at the time? You know, like kids need to know that like a lot of this is 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 created and there's a lot of decisions and, and with decisions come power that that go into image making. Absolutely. And I think, too, one of the things that excites me about Little Red Fashion's angle on the industry is our definition of the industry is very broad. We're not just speaking to the future fashion designers or models. We're talking to the future makeup artists, the future hairstylists, the future uh, textile manufacturer, etc. And so I think that's another piece that needs bears discussion in the sense that one of the things I also noticed having worked with some Project Runway alumni in my consulting career, which also was part of the inspiration behind, um, you know, the series, we have spent a generation with these shows like Project Runway, Making the Cut, Next in Fashion, da 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 da, da. Even in 2015, they did uh, Children's Fashion Runway. Mm -hmm. You would think that at that time, someone would have said, we're inspiring all these kids but where are we putting that inspiration in a structured way that actually takes it to the next level and takes it from entertainment to engagement and education? Right. And so um, I always say we're just creating things that are a generation overdue, frankly. So you have already mentioned augmented reality. Can you kind of just like paint a picture of like what the big scope 
of the project is? Like, what are the pieces of the puzzle? Because you said fidgetal, so that's, that's like the combination of physical and digital. But what are you hoping to do in terms of like, what, it, what will the output be? Well, there's quite a lot of output. So <laughs> in one, I'll, I'll put it in buckets. So in one bucket, we have the titles, right? So that's 12 titles planned over five years, asterisk, depending on how, how that goes. The number one may say the deployment schedule may, may shift, of course. Um, and then each of those titles will entail the digital edition and then a special print edition that includes the augmented reality activations as well. And those may be updated over time to reflect different levels of nuance. One of the things we're also exploring uh, with some of our incoming board members uh, and advisors who are just clearing up some paperwork with is really how we can then segment those augmented reality activations over time where, yes, okay, the core book is, let's say, a kid's book for, you know, ages seven through nine, but through AR, we can create activations that also have grade level, you know, older material if they're like older sibling to encourage them to read the book with their younger sibling and also give them similar context that's a little up-leveled for them. Um, really, it's a wide open space. What I love about augmented reality, the metaverse, and all of these things is that as a technologist, we really have only scratched the surface of what ed tech can do. And in terms of fashion, we've really never applied emergent ed tech to it before at all. In terms of fashion education, I, I think, you know, digital fashion archive is great, for example. But again, Adult resource, largely for adults, it's not really brought down to that, that kid level. Uh, and so there's the titles and the AR activations. On the other side of the tech, we also have two apps that we are developing. So one is uh, what I call our learning laboratory, which is the Little Red Sketchbook. So it is a sketchbook that uh, includes flat pack style sketches that kids can either emulate or croaky that they can draw over. And then if it's a template, one of the things that uh, we're, we've prototyped is this idea that I call InfoLink, where um, I believe in order to foster uh, the next generation to be culturally appreciative instead of appropriative, it's important and essential that we give them context. So if a child selects the kimono template, they'll not only get the template, but then they'll get a little sidebar that says, like, here's a link to the Wikipedia entry on kimonos. Here's a link to, uh, you know, a culturally relevant resource from someone who's Japanese explaining why the kimono is important, what that cultural heritage means, and the history of it as well. Um, because I think dovetailing those is essential. So right yeah. now, uh, as we're pre-revenue and you know opening our angel round soon, one of the things I'm really excited to do is take the Little Red Sketchbook out of prototype because my ultimate vision of it, for, of it is uh, sort of like a sketchbook meets fashion history vis-a-vis pop-up video for VH1, if you remember that. I grew, grew up on Yeah, I loved it. Same. Uh, <laughs> one of my favorites. And so taking that sort of fun approach to fashion history and context in a space where they're also creating technical skills, whether that's softly introducing them to the concept of flat pack sketches, which is important for anyone who does eventually want to go into design, technical design, whatever, uh, but also that, that education context as well. Um, then uh, in our first iteration, the idea was I want to, you know, I, this all started with, I want to give a kid who wants to design their first collection all the tools they need, right? So they got the books to inspire them and educate them. They've got the uh, Little Red Sketchbook to practice and create uh, and provide some historical context, different fashion trivia, maybe some mini games related to vocabulary, things like that. Last part of the puzzle, fabric. Only way to learn fabric is to touch it. You need hand feel. You've got to, you know, like, you can't. 
abstractly explain GSM weights to a child. And you just got to put it in their hands and say, this is this, this is that. So we're creating a the little red bag of fabric, which we're treating uh, sort of like Cards Against Humanity with expansion packs that are themed uh, to different titles as they roll out. So for example, when we do the little red hijab, which is all about Middle Eastern fashion uh, and textile, as well as you know dovetailing that with the social issues relative to xenophobia and bullying and things like that, we will also then be working to release little red bag of fabric sets that then include those things as well, where they'll be able to use the QR code on the back to then scan it into their uh, sketchbook, which will then have that expansion where it's almost like a Pokedex. For those of you who like Pokemon that are listening, it's very much that meets fabric. And it'll bring up more information uh, about, you know, this is how this textile is produced. This is what the fiber means. This is a mixed fiber. And this is why it's problematic for sustainability purposes. You know, this is what microplastics are. It's, it's allowing the rabbit hole to happen organically. Right. Because when kids want something, they're sponges. When they're into it, I know I used to read those books, um, eyewitness books. Eyewitness books were like a form of almost encyclopedic pictorial uh, topical books for kids. And I had almost the entire set, whether it was Ancient Room, Gems, this, that, and the third. Uh, and I remember, I think it's now under Al- Noth Publishing, if I'm not mistaken. But I was also inspired by that idea because I remember just being able to drill down into so many different things. And I, again, fashion has not created those resources for kids yet. And so uh, that's where the app, that first app comes in. The second app, is a gamified platform that's again similar to Pokemon that allows kids to engage with mentorship from fashion industry insiders. And so uh, that is called the Little Red Village because I believe that it takes the fashion industry as a village to raise the next generation of fashion leaders and creatives. And so we are initially kicking it off as the largest database of children's fashion themed mentorship content ever created. And we're doing that through short format, 20 minute interviews that are essentially like inside the actor's studio meets fashion, but for kids. And we'll be exploring things. And, uh, you know, this definitely will resonate with you guys as a result of uh, what you're doing at Dress. I've noticed when you guys started putting into like, what is your earliest fashion memory question, which is, <laughs> was one of the first ones on our roster. And I, I remember when you guys faced that question and I was like, Hey, I've been thinking about this constantly. <laughs> and, um, Different things like that, or what advice would you give 10-year-old Tom Ford, Tom Ford, you know, uh, and, and all of those kinds of explorations so that the co- the responses they give will be compiled into the database that will power the gamified platform where kids will then be able to engage with those digital avatars of these fashion creatives and leaders. Because I think barriers to entry uh, for our industry are notoriously high. Everybody knows that. And I think providing that direct access to the thought leadership brought down again to that level where it's directly produced with kids and families in mind is essential because I've read bajillions of interviews in my day and we don't really touch on, those questions don't usually come up, you know what I mean? And so creating a warehouse resource for that is super important to me for that. I mean, sign me up. I want all these things for myself and I'm not a kid. (laughs) Well, that's a thing. It's also like, I often joke that we're going to end up having as many physical book sales to adults as we do with kids, because the idea is also, as you've seen with the illustrations, like we are creating visually beautiful books. It's all about honoring the idea of fashion. You know, everyone says fashion is a fantasy. Fashion is a fantasy. It is. And I think that creating children's books about that fantasy is all about doing it through a lens against of diversity, equity, and inclusion as well as honoring things like the craft of fashion illustration, uh, which is, you know, which is definitely important uh, and near and dear to both our hearts. And so 
I think our offerings are able to do that in a way that allows adults to feel comfortable saying, you know what, I'm going to pick up this book just because this is great bathroom reading and it's an aesthetically pleasing book that I want to throw on my coffee table. You know, that's also part of it. Is that my main demographic? No, this is about the kids. But I want something that adults absolutely feel is still pretty and valuable to them, even if only for the art in the book and that, um, that nostalgia. I think all of us, well, at least the feedback I've gotten both from parents and fashion nerds who've looked at the advanced copy of the book have said like, oh my God, this brought me back to when I was a kid and imagining what the fashion world was like in my head. And that's exactly what we were going for was this balance between the dreamlike, the fashion illustrative and the nostalgic. Yes. Well, I'm so glad that you brought up that your first book, your first title is now complete. It's called The Little Red Dress. Will you tell our listeners a little bit about this first title and and how the book introduces this series that is still to come? Sure, absolutely. So uh, The Little Bit Dress is the story of a dress and the many lives it leads as it goes from what I call sketch to sketch, meaning it starts off its life as a sketch of the designer, then it goes and it becomes a sample, then it goes and becomes, well, first it becomes a muslin, then it becomes a sample, uh, then it goes down the runway, then it goes to the showroom, then it goes to a photo shoot in Milan, then it goes and it gets given away to a model who, you know, archives it away in her closet, then it is rediscovered many years later uh, with, you know, some odds and ends missing, some beads gone, you know, she's a little tired, she's got some wrinkles, she's getting liberated from her box. So, at, you know, at the, the purpose of the Little Red Dress is really to illustrate that every garment through the Little Red Dress as a, as a metonymical structure, if you want to get into the literature of it, the literary terminology, has many lives that it leads. And I'm all about the implied thesis where I want to translate to kids that when you buy a garment, it doesn't just end when you want to throw a garment away. That garment could live a completely separate life after you're done with it, because that's why we have the next phase of the book, uh, you know, the latter half is all about the dress after it gets pulled out of that closet, after it gets repaired, uh, you know, enough to take to a consignment shop as it was, you know, a high-end Parisian it dress, as it were. Uh, Her name is Michelle. That is her style (laughs) name. It is my subtle homage to Michelle Obama, in case you're listening. We'd love to get you a copy of the book. And the idea then is is to show kids, you know, when you're done with something that's a quality, if you buy a quality garment, when you're done with it, you can take it to a consignment store. Someone else can discover it. And in a little red dress, the, you know, has a little existential crisis. It's like, oh my God, I'm I'm gathering dust on this rack in this consignment store. They like abandoned me here. What's going to happen? And lo and behold, a fashion historian, an archivist comes in and may or may not be an homage to Iris Apfel uh, <laughs> because we had to had to pay homage to the rare bird herself and, uh, you know, takes it down the street to the museum because she says, oh my God, I remember this dress from Paris and it was an it dress so many years ago and uh, we got to take it. We got to take it. So she picks it up at the consignment shop. It gets repaired. The beading, you know, gets repaired by the team at the museum. And we end the book with the little red dress on its plinth in the museum surrounded by kids who are doing their own sketches, you know, of the dress. So like I said, it's a sketch to sketch story of the full life cycle of a mythical it dress. Yeah. And I would just like to give a huge shout out to Sylvan Boyer, who did all these incredible illustrations in the book. Um, and and like you kind of referenced earlier, the illustrations aren't, I mean, they're just so beautiful. They're not necessarily like kid illustrations. They are 
adult level appreciation fashion illustrations. So can you talk to us a little bit about the role that illustration will play in, in the overarching project? And, and why did you pick illustration instead of photography? Well, there, there's a few answers there. So for one thing, as I mentioned prior, it's all about showing kids the sheer depth and breadth of opportunities within this industry that they may align with depending on their individual interests. And one of those is fashion illustration. And so putting fashion illustration front and center, obviously as, as a, both a painter and a fashion nerd was, was a personal choice, A, but it was also, uh, I felt the best way to evoke the dreamlike quality of old school fashion sketches back in the 40s, back in the 50s, before we had photography and where every major publication had their sketch artists and they were interpreting the designs as artists themselves, the art of the art. You know, and I felt like that was an important thing to translate because I think for now the zeitgeist is all about transformation of this industry. COVID has thrown us into a chaotic pause that, uh, in a weird way for Little Red Fashion at least, worked in our favor, so to speak, because we are definitely disrupting the uh, hierarchical conventions of fashion and we are definitely all about um, the democratization of the industry. And so by empowering kids through fashion illustration, I felt like we were walking this fine line between translating the nitty gritty of the industry while still providing a wide open space for them to imagine. Abstraction lets them put themselves in the narrative. And it was also very important for me if you, you know, take a look, for example, all of our illustrations sought to make sure that we were representing women. We were representing different racial and ethnic communities as constituent parts of this ecosystem. The pattern cutter, for example, is a, you know a, an African male. The designer is an Asian woman. Uh, and so, you know, the idea, I don't like children's books that are either tokenizing or that try to solve a problem while accidentally creating another one, <laughs> so, so to speak. Yeah. And so for me, it has to be organic, right? And so for me, for example, if you look on the runway page where the Little Red Dresses debuted, you will notice that there are, there's no one has a skin tone. You know, they're all skin tone less, by and large. Uh, outside of a couple instances, there is almost no skin tone in anyone because I want all kids to be able to just project themselves into whoever they resonate with as a character within the book. That's not to say that there's not, you know, character a character sitting front row that is reminiscent of Billy Porter or of, uh, you know, Iris Apfel, for example, but also we have someone who's, you know, in the front row who's in a wheelchair. It's all about making inclusion inclusive without making it a, an outlier, without that otherness. We didn't want to create a title or any illustrations that were predicated on othering. And so uh, I wanted to integrate without it being that. And I think we accomplished it uh, by making it not, you know, not putting it fore and center. What's front and center is the little red dress. What's front and center is the fashion. But what we're doing is taking it and envisioning a fashion industry that is inherently inclusive organically, because this is about where fashion can go. This is about children envisioning the fashion future for themselves and having it already inclusive by its very nature through those illustrations. You'll see, for example, um, that we have a, a light-haired uh, black child in the uh, consignment shop page where they're running towards, and but there's a you know there's clearly and it's clearly implied, rather, that the parent slash caretaker is of a different race. So there's an, a, like a subtle adoption moment, which may be, you know, a little autobiographical, but 
also relevant. Again, I, I think it's important when dealing with children to make sure we are creating imagery that is inclusive without being problematic by accident. Um, because I do think that happens a lot with the kids' books that I read, uh, you know, in researching uh, this title and, and the other ones. And so the reason I went with illustration again was for that abstraction piece and for the ability for children to project into that abstraction themselves as easily as possible. But also because of our technological focus as well, I have free reign to integrate photography into those AR activations. I can do 360 degree photography with other things that we're working on with Anina, for example. Um, I didn't feel that we had to be limited to either or. We're more of an and. Yeah. And how did you find Sylvan? So I went through an exhaustive process between Instagram and <laughs> personal recommendations and colleagues within my network. And I eventually, uh, after talking to about 40-something people, uh, 40, 49, I think he was number 50, if I'm, if I'm correct. Uh, I just, there were many that were close you know, but some were too New Yorker-esque, some were too literal, where it was like a line-by-line illustration style, some were too childlike. What I liked about Sylvan was that he balanced ethereal with painterly, and that painterly piece definitely spoke to me as an abstract artist myself. Uh, And ultimately, I found Sylvan first on Instagram, and then I recognized his style when, honestly, in a fit of desperation at two in the morning, I was on Fiverr, of all places, looking at their verified pros. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I totally recognize this from one of my Instagram saved posts. And I was like, this is the same guy. Wait, this is okay. All right. So then we struck up a, a discussion, a conversation, because... Uh, out of, you know, those dozens and dozens of folks, his stuff caught my eye that time where I was just like, oh, there it is again. Okay, this must be a thing. It was just very organic in that sense. Uh, I would have gladly, you know, had we not found him, looked for 50 others. I mean, I was in in that sort of creator space where I was just like, I'm going to find the perfect person when I find the perfect person and I'm not going to stress about it. You know, the manuscript is done, whatever. Uh, And so that's how I found Silicon, both Instagram and Fiverr. So shout out to both of those. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, and you know what? I, I love his style because it, it's a little bit late 50s, early 60s with a tad of like 70s fashion illustration nostalgia. Yeah, it's it's a mix. It's it's a heady mix of like all these different decades of classic fashion illustration in a way. And what, uh, you know, future state deployment, one of the things that's important to me as a publisher is the idea that now with Sylvan inking our first title, he has laid an aesthetic baseline for our brand. And when we do other titles that are culturally relevant, I have every intention of bringing in other illustrators from those backgrounds to also join the pantheon of those giving rise to our titles. And so they will then sort of uh, Chopin-esque, the variation on the theme will always come back to Sylvan and this original title. Even if Sylvan is not illustrating all of our titles, uh, his aesthetic will be the baseline off of which these other artists riff and integrate their own stylistic flair. So you've already mentioned the little red hijab. What are some of the other titles that you plan on creating in the future? Oh, so, so many. <laughs> oh, boy. So our once we receive our seed funding, because we are raising uh, a sizable chunk of change in seed funding, 
we will be deploying the Little Red Kit, which we are actively working on right now, which is our technical fabric and sportswear title, all about the footy, as they call it in the UK. Uh, my business partner and dear friend Ryan is an enormous soccer fan. Enormous, <laughs> enormous, enormous. And I used to play soccer uh, very, very terribly. Uh, it was another thing that they were like, he should do this. It will strengthen his legs. Da, 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 da. And uh, wasn't very good at it. Not at all. But it was fun. And uh, I thought to myself when, you know, rolling out the first titles, uh, you know, initially I was like, oh, I'll just write the first book. And then I was like, well, I guess I'll write the first two because I got to do something for my fellow CP warriors out there, right? Where uh, we have that visibility, uh, especially as somebody who's mild CP, it was really important for me to directly advocate for those who find themselves uh, with, you know, spasticity in our wheelchair bound. So I wanted to create a title that was all about the world of sportswear through the eyes of a child who loves soccer, but can't necessarily play it the way the other kids do because he is in a wheelchair and he ends up getting interested in the uniform. He ends up realizing how much he loves collecting jerseys from different football clubs. And even though he has his favorite, whose name will not be revealed, because uh, if you're listening, Liverpool, you guys are the Reds. <laughs> and uh, that's like a perfect alignment. Also, Marcus Rashford. Hey, buddy. Anyway, that aside, uh, you know. He gets into the uniforms and he starts trading them with his friends who also play soccer. And inevitably, he finds out about a contest that uh, is a kit designing contest for one of his favorite clubs. And so he sends in his idea. He like learn, you know, he dives in, he goes to the library. He's like learning about, you know, history of different clubs and this, that, and this third. And he's looking online and he starts designing these kits, right, in his little red sketchbook. And just, just define what a kit is, just in case some of our listeners are not huge soccer fans. Sure. So a soccer kit is the full uniform. Uh, you may hear the expression, the whole kit and caboodle. So the kit is the shorts. It's the, uh, shin, you know, it's the socks over the shin guards. It's the shirt. If you're a goalkeeper, it also often includes the gloves, for example. Oh, and I wish I could remember who did this, but someone just did a phenomenal jacket out of uh, all keeper gloves that came across my Instagram feed the other day. Uh, and we definitely saved that post for later. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that is a kit. And um, there is a strong history. Of, uh, the zeitgeist is shifting. It used to be that you would only have like the kits that your club would put out. But over recent years, what you see is more and more kids and, and, and soccer fans trading jerseys. You see players trading jerseys with other players that they respect within uh, the game. Uh, and I think that it's also interesting to use as a lens to discuss the idea of technical fabrics and the creation of sportswear in general. Mm -hmm. So what we do through this, this kid is he then uh, sends off his design and he actually loses the competition because one thing I don't like with a lot of disability-related kids' books is sometimes they have this unintentional tone, again, unintentional, unintentional tone of patronization where it's like, okay, good job, buddy. Uh, and I don't, I don't like that. Um, I hated being treated that way when I was a kid and people would see my leg braces or my eye patch or whatever. You know, and so um, it's important that kids who have a disability see that like, yes, you too may fail at something, but you have to keep your head up. So he then says, well, essentially screw that. I still had fun doing this. I want to keep designing uniforms. So he ends up designing a ton of different kits for a ton of different clubs and his uh, parents help him like send them out to the different club. They like research how to you know, get in touch with them. And, they send them out, and one of them comes back and says, oh my God, we loved your kit. Do you want to like, uh, how would you feel about making it? And then through his eyes, he goes to the manufacturing process, he goes to the iterative design process, and through him, kids learn all about these different things. 
Uh, and so our, our thesis for most of our titles is that um, the kids at the heart of them are the lens through which the kids reading learn about the aspects of the industry uh, and the inner uh, struggle or issue that that character is necessarily dealing with, whether it be disabilities, you know, and various other isms and obias. Yeah. What I really love so much about this project is that you're exposing the industry aspect. So, you know, our regular listeners know that, you know, I'm at FIT as not just a curator, but also, you know, faculty teaching. And and one of the things that I always tell my students is how critical the business aspect is, because I think a lot of people like roll into design school and they're like, you know, I'm just going to make beautiful, fabulous things. And, and that is all well and good until you hit the point where <laughs> you actually have to start making them. So if you're not making one-of-a-kind garments, you're going to have to participate in this bigger, wider world. And fashion and, and the fashion industry is like really one of the like ginormous cogs that like turns the wheel of capitalism, right? So it's this expansive conversation that you are letting kids know about that where else would they find this out? hundred percent. I'm really glad you brought that up because it speaks to one of our other initiatives, which is called the Little Red Classroom that we're developing. Uh, and this goes back to the earlier point I said, similar to what you guys are doing here at Dress. Leveraging fashion as a lens, this lensing dynamic is so, so vital. And it occurred to me in, develop these things, in developing not only the titles, but the, uh, the apps, I said, okay, so we're creating a very interesting educational resource. But a lot of kids who don't maybe necessarily want to go into fashion, don't realize the business side where they might want to be in business and not realize that fashion is a really accessible entry point into learning the ins and outs of business. Then spend five seconds on TikTok and you will see all of these young kids who are trying to hustle, who are trying to start, you know, merch and brands and get into like, uh, you know, dropshipping blanks and like, yes, dropshipping blanks is not fashion design in a cut and sew sense by any means, but for young kids, it's their entryway into understanding the dynamics of garments, the dynamics of the business side of things. And so what Little Red Classroom is, and what we're developing uh, over the next couple of years, that should come out in a few years, it's going to take a while. Uh, we are creating grade levels for grades four through 10, uh, STEAM and literacy material, uh, literacy reading comprehension, et cetera, materials that leverage fashion history, trivia, business of fashion, pattern making, et cetera, as the fodder for those problem sets, those reading passages and those things, because nobody's done that. Look, I, from all accounts that I've gotten, um, materials for this kind of educational enrichment haven't much changed since I was in school. Uh, you know, it's still that very, frankly, boring, disengaging, college board-esque, you know, passages. Um, but the fact of the matter is, fashion is and remains one of the most aspirational career sectors uh, we have. Uh, I call it the celebrity chefication of the industry. And I think it uh, goes, <laughs> goes back to the idea that uh, of these shows that we've had for almost a decade, over a decade now, that have made our industry a very enticing place for kids to put their attention. And so if we can use those optics to then re-engage them with the other skills that they need, regardless of the career path that they choose, whether it be in fashion or not, why wouldn't we do that? Why is nobody doing that? And so that's part of what Little Red Classroom is also about is, is leveraging those wider conversations about, you know, cost per unit, margins, uh, et cetera. Fashion is a business. And I, I, I think that a lot of people 
like forget about that when you enter design school. It is first and foremost a business. Uh, they do. I mean, you know, I spoke to being inspired partially for this project as having, having consulted in luxury women's wear and streetwear. You know, uh, it's all well and good to be an ivory tower creative. You know, I had a former client who was a phenomenal pattern cutter. I mean, technically phenomenal. Just don't let him near the books. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you know what I mean? And, and, and so uh, that was part of the impetus behind this too, uh, where it's like um, theory is great and creativity is amazing. But without understanding the business side, leave yourself open to so much suffering. How many young designers disenfranchise themselves by not having, and for many of them, especially from lower income backgrounds, uh, financial literacy is already, they're like behind the eight ball. So again, creating these resources for early and earlier ages, I think is really important. I know I can speak for myself. The reason I became a, a business person and a business nerd early in life was because in high school and middle school, I had access to different like uh, simulations where it was like, oh, simulate being a business owner, learn how to balance a checkbook, all, all those different things. Uh, and I think without that, I would not have wanted to become a consultant. I would have started my first company uh, out of a dorm room in 2009. Uh, you know, that was a mindfulness media company. It was an early competitor to Elven Journal. They came in at the tail end of when we ended. You were called Art of Dharma. Uh, but that's a whole separate conversation. Moral of the story being, uh, without access to resources that are impactful, kids just don't know. And for fashion, adults, most adults, don't know yeah. how it works either. We are an opaque, a relatively opaque industry. And so lifting that veil, lifting that mystery is essential to solving almost every major problem we have. Systemic problems require systemic solutions. So when people say, wow, literary and fashion is doing a lot, you know, whether it's titles, tools, technology, Yes, we are, because A, we're in a white space, children's fashion education, but B, the only way to solve these bigger issues that we face that are existential is to create a systemic solution. I, hopefully the mouse doesn't stab me in my sleep, but I fully believe <laughs> that we will be the Disney meets Apple of fashion uh, with a little bit of scholastic thrown in there. Because unless we do that, how are we going to teach the next generation of fashion lovers, leaders, and creatives to have better relationships to clothing so that we can start to shut down the ill effects of fast fashion, so that we can start really illustrating, no pun intended, to the Inditexes of the world, to the H&Ms of the world that, like it or not, you had your time for this whole exploitative mess that is fast fashion, and that window is rapidly closing, so you better get the program. Right. Okay. This is amazing. I'm inspired. I want all the apps, all the books, all the things. And I'm sure many, many other of our listeners feel the same. So if, if people want to learn a little bit more about Little Red Fashion or become involved or even potentially become an investor, how can they find you? Awesome. So the easiest way to find us is at littleredfashion.com where you can actually sign up for our mailing list, which is super essential. Uh, I'll break it down for you as a, as a consultant who's fundraised for clients. The most important thing for us in our growth trajectory right now, while we secure a number of strategic partnerships, we're in conversations, for example, with the CFDA right now, which is really exciting. As I mentioned, we only went public with our mission in the first week of January. So the fact that so many people have been rapidly responsive to us is amazing. The best way is littleredfashion.com or on Instagram. You can feel free to DM me uh, at littleredfashionco, C-O. 
Those are the two easiest ways to get in touch. And if you're a fashion industry professional with at least five years of experience, I am dying to get you in our slate for Little Red Village for these interviews. Um, I may or may not also be drafting a treatment to take me to Netflix, uh, which is exciting uh, because I think it's perfect for a short run series and we will be exploring that as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, I am an open book. I am all about communication and I am so grateful to you and Cass and to the listenership here at Dressed uh, and my, my fellow Dressed Nerd fans <laughs> out there because um, truly accomplishing this mission is not only my life's work, but it is so, so important that we really as adults take stock of what kind of industry we're leaving to the future. And really, I hope, my hope is that we can look back five years from now and see the beginnings of this new generation. We will not have a future Balenciaga level talent if we do not provide resources for where they're at. And so at our early stage for where we are as a startup, that support, that going to our Instagram, hitting not only follow, but engaging with our posts, leaving comments. If we drop a post uh, about Madame Gret, you know, let, tell me your favorite draping. What's your favorite pleated garment? Let's talk about Fortuny. We're all about dialogue here at Little Red Fashion. And so really the best thing you can do is not only go to the website, sign up for the mailing list, pre-order a digital copy of the book, which will also get you a discount on the print title when those roll out. Get us those metrics so that we can go to the table with the investors we need to meet with in order to make this large vision a reality because it will take all of us as a village, as a fashion-loving community, to come together and really empower this next generation in ways that have never been seen before for a number of reasons. Because unless we do, we will still have an epidemic of young boys and girls throwing up in bathrooms because of body dysmorphia. We will still have lots of black and brown children feeling unseen, feeling uh, marginalized, feeling tokenized. We will still see the disenfranchisement of the disability community. We will still see rampant transphobia and homophobia. And we will still see the issues that have recently been highlighted in the McKinsey PDH report, which showed us that our industry is still light years behind where we would want to be in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion, inclusion and sustainability. And hopefully you and the dressed family will support us in our mission. And hopefully together we will get this across the finish line. <laughs> we are, we're, we're here, man. We are here. I'm all in. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan, for chatting with us today. Jonathan, I just have to say, wow, just wow. Thank you so much for sharing your incredible vision. And we are so here for it. We cannot yes. wait to see what you have in store for all of us coming soon. Yes. And dress listeners, you can go ahead and head on over to littleredfashion.com right now to learn more. You can pre-order their very first title, which is called The Little Red Dress. Or if you'd like to support their mission as a fashion professional or a parent, there is also a lot more information over there in terms of what is to come and how you can become involved. So on that note, I think that does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider fashion's future next time you get dressed. We do love hearing from you. So if you would like to reach out, you can email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com 
Or alternately, you can DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, which is, of course, where we post images to accompany each week's episode. And thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each week. We will catch you on Tuesday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.